Today's sermon scripture reading is found on page 1114 in your pew Bibles. Page 1114, I'll be reading the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on page 1114. And I'll actually start in the last verse of chapter 12. And now, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, what a monumental and countercultural statement about your love for us and about the love that you kindle 
spark and fan into flame in us. Lord God, be with my brother Mark as he brings your word. Pray that you would give him the strength to continue and to you would give us the ears to hear and the will to do what you ask of us through him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Yuri. As we begin this message on love and this series of four weeks in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, um, I'd, I'd like to clarify something. So kind of a bit of a rumor going around and I just want to nip it in the bud. It uh, comes from my friend Neil Creighton and I'd just like to let you know that Jay Giles' band is not my favorite band of all time and their somewhat well-known song Love Stinks is not my favorite love song and nor is it my particular thoughts on the topic of, of love and I, I wouldn't even address it but the last time which was the second time this ugly rumor was launched out to the crowd. Uh, my youngest daughter, we were out on a walk of our, of our dogs that afternoon, and she said, Dad, I can't believe you think love stinks. And I said, well, I don't. And she said, well, that's what Dr. Neal said. I said, he completely made that up. That's entirely made up. She said, oh, well, I, I didn't think that would be true. And I thought, well, if it, if it confused my youngest daughter, I think maybe I need to say something more generally to, to spoke, folks about that the next time I address the topic of love. So uh, if you're interested, my favorite love song of all time is entitled Madrigal by this little Canadian band, Rush, um, lyric by Neil, Neil Peart and uh, vocal by Getty Lee and their little uh, band with Alex Lifeson, Rush. So check it out, the, the writing is fantastic. It's a very short song, two, hour, two minutes and 36 seconds, I think, but a fantastic uh, love song. Well, having cleared that up for, I'm, I'm sure everybody who heard it the first and second time are here this morning, so either on the live stream or here, so we've got that uh, clarified now. Uh, without a doubt, love is the topic most discussed and most written about in all of human history. In novels and in essays, in film and in theater, in music of all genres, in all languages and cultures, in all people groups, in all places in the world. and not just in France and in French. Love and hate are most often juxtaposed against each other, but it'd be more accurate to say that indifference or neglect is the opposite of love and peace or perhaps compassion is the opposite of hate. God is no less righteous and holy in his loving for example, the world, his creation, his son, his people, us, because he is equally righteous and holy in his hating. Clearly, if, if God can express both love and hate with equal commitment and passion, and he does, 
then they cannot be the opposite of each other. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, clarifies the case for those of us who assume or believe that God is only love. Though God is love, he's not only love. God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16, both make that very clear propositional statement, God is love. Not that God is loving, he, he is, but he is love in his being God is love. Yes, but he is much more complicated than that. He's not either or, but both and, while remaining altogether holy and altogether righteous. Let's hear that passage from Proverbs chapter 6, beginning with verse 16. There are six things that the Lord Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Notice that, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans or schemes. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. So we need to be careful we need to be thoroughly biblical and thoroughly Christian when we think about or talk about God's love as if there's nothing or no one that he hates, there is. In fact, this one adjustment will help us to help others in various confusions of our day. For sure, love looks different and sounds different and feels different from one culture, even one person to another, but love is central to all human relations throughout human history. Why? because God is love. And we human beings are created to image him and to bear his likeness, every single one of us. Not that every human being actually does this. No, we don't, not since the fall. That's why Jesus came. But every human being was created for this same purpose, to bear God's image and likeness representing him on the earth in our place and time. This is why love is the greatest aspiration of all human endeavors. The most highly valued aspect of all human capacities. The most highly desired virtue of human character and the most sought after of all human need. We were born, no, we were created to love and to be loved. And yet, though all of that is true, when love is not understood, when love is not given, when love is not received, when love is not accepted or experienced through the lens of the Bible, and more precisely, we should say, the lens of God in Christ Jesus, then love becomes mysterious, murky, confusing, even all too frustrating. So what is love from a biblical point of view? Yes, I, I know we just said that God is love, but what is love? And specifically from a biblical point of view, 
That is, by biblical definition and through the living, dying, raising, and ascending, interceding lens of God in Christ Jesus. Here it is, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. This is the, as close as we ever come to a clear and concise definition of love in the Bible, that is, of godly love, the kind of love that we are talking about or that the Bible talks about concerning what love is, also how love is manifested in us, among us, and through us, how we express love outwardly, and how we receive love from God and from each other as children of the living God. Except in that very important section of John's gospel that we looked at a couple weeks ago, chapters 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus is teaching his disciples about his departure and the coincident coming of the Holy Spirit and the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our lives and in our ministries. Right in the middle of that massively important section in John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he, Jesus Christ, lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now the two points Jesus is making here, I believe, is first of all, true love, godly love, the love spoken of in the Bible and that Jesus means to give and for us to receive is self-sacrificial. One more time, true love, godly love, the love spoken of in the Bible and that Jesus means to give and for us to receive is self-sacrificial. And secondly, we do not become Jesus's friends by doing what he commands. We do what he commands if and or when we become his friends. Do you see or hear the difference? I'll say it one more time. We do not become Jesus' friends by doing what he commands. We do what he commands if and when we become his friends. One, becoming someone by doing something is religious, dutiful, works-based. The other, doing something because we are someones, namely his friends, is relational, spiritual, and grace-based. Let me say it again to give us a chance for a breakthrough. We do not become Jesus' friends by doing what he commands. We do what he commands if and or when we become his friends. This means that love is not so much determined or centered on the giver, even Jesus, but it's the giver's giving of himself or herself to another. It's the giving that makes love love. Of course, only Jesus could do what he did because he was without sin and he followed the Holy Spirit's lead perfectly throughout his earthly life of obeying his Father's will. No one else ever did or would do that. But what we're talking about this morning and for the next three weeks is how can we do what Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit in our place and time with the same motive of love, the same practice of love, 
and the same outcomes due to love. And so to follow that line of thought a bit further, love is made full or complete when it is both given and received. So it's also in the accepting of it and in the receiving of it that makes love, love. Now, I want to be careful here. But there is a sense in which love isn't complete, even the love of God in Christ Jesus, until it's been received. Jesus offers himself freely. And if we accept and receive what he offers freely, his love becomes complete. Love never fails. Before we move on quickly, let me just say that the love in verse 8 never ends just as easily as it never fails. What I mean is my English Standard Version reads, love never ends. Our Pew Bible, which is the New International Version, 1984, reads more traditionally, love never fails. It could be either. It's probably both. We'll talk about it in, the, in some length in a couple of weeks. I just wanted to draw your attention to it in this introduction. That's uh, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, when I say accept and receive what Jesus offers us freely, I don't mean without cost. So often we hear the word free and we think, well, we don't have to pay anything. I don't think that's the primary meaning here. There are several verses both in Jesus' words and in other words, that do refer to the payment of something or the non-payment of something, and it is then referred to as free. But I don't think this is the primary meaning here. The primary meaning here, when we talk about accepting and receiving what Jesus offers us freely, is that it's it's without hindrance or without hesitation or without restraint, or it's without self-interest or self-preservation, but it's given freely without regard to the cost to me. There will be many costs, and there were many costs, to enable Christ to give freely to us. It wasn't free in the sense of non-payment. There are many costs to following Jesus, too. Following Jesus is not free in the sense of not costing us something. But we can give ourselves to him freely, without hindrance, without restraint, without hesitation, without self-interest or self-preservation, and we can give ourselves to each other in the same way, freely. I think that's the primary meaning of Scripture when it talks about us giving and Jesus giving freely of ourselves or himself. So concerning the source of love, the quality of love, the substance of love, and the expression of love spoken of in the Bible by Jesus himself, and especially here in our passage, 1 Corinthians 13, John helps us once again from chapter 4 of his first general letter to the church, verse 7 of chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, so it's not just that God is love, but he also then expresses his love to us. He, he, he gives us his love. He's done so most especially in Jesus, and we'll get to that in just a second. But, but let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, watch it now, and his love is perfected, completed in us. Verse 13, whenever, whenever we hear passages like this, which is beyond us, or which are beyond us, when we don't know how on earth we'll ever get that done, look for the Holy Spirit. Look, for, and you'll find him. He'll, he'll be close at hand, and in verse 13, there he is. By this we know that we abide in him, that is, in God, or perhaps even in, in God in Christ Jesus, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now, We've gone to such lengths to define, describe, and illustrate the Bible's expansive yet particular view of love so that when we read about love here in the love chapter, as 1 Corinthians 13 is often referred, we might have a chance at entering into its profound message. Now, listen to what I just said. We might have a chance at entering into its profound message, not just understanding it, but entering into it. That biblical, godly, spirit-driven love means, first, giving ourselves to God. Second, giving ourselves to each other. And third, giving ourselves to the world. Just as Jesus gave himself to the Father, to, the, to us, and to the world as well. After all, we follow him. So let's finally get to it. Please look with me in your bulletins to the central truth of our message, which you'll find there in the upper inside left corner. It reads, predictably perhaps, extending the love of God in Christ Jesus. So notice we're extending something. That means we have it already. That means it's been given, given to us first, and now we are offering it to others. We're extending the love of God in Christ Jesus to all and in everything is the priority of Christian faith life, and ministry. One more time, extending the love of God in Christ Jesus to all and in everything is the priority of Christian faith, life, and ministry. So now before we continue, just a, just a brief, brief prayer. Lord, you have been so good to us over the years. Bethesda Church is now in its 79th year. That's amazing. There, there are other older churches, Lord, I, I know. But I can hardly think of more faithful churches. Churches that have been as steady. Yeah, there have been problems. There are problems wherever humans are. But as committed and as 
resolved and as resilient and is hope-filled and faith-driven and spirit-born, grounded on your word, following after Jesus as best we can understand, and often, perhaps not always, but often with the simple kind of faith that Yuri talked about with Joseph. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us that kind of faith. Simple faith, that's what God says? Okay, that's what we'll do. Vast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and interceding on our behalf and returning soon, and love. Not the superficial thing that we hear about in our songs, not the superficial thing that we see on our TVs and on our films, not even the great affection that we have for each other, husbands and wives and children and friends, but the kind of love that you are. God is love. We want to be like Jesus, Lord. At least that's what we say because we know it's good, right, and true, and, and we ought to want to be like Jesus, and we say that we want to be like Jesus, will help us to actually be like Jesus. Self-sacrificial. Lacking self-interest and self-preservation. Focused on one thing. Maybe two. Love for God and love for our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when looking at your clocks or your watches this morning, please keep in mind that this is an introduction to a series of messages. And we'll be done before you know it this morning because we have three more Sundays to flesh out the particulars in detail. And besides, isn't it true that good things Come for those who wait. I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere, Pastor Yuri. Um, but I promise it'll be over before you know it. And understanding that the love we're dealing with in the Bible and in Orthodox Christian practice goes far beyond our normal cultural and personal understandings and applications of love. And this understanding will be vital over the course of the next three weeks and today, too. This kind of love is not normal. You won't find this sort of love anywhere else but in Christ. You won't be able to love this way in any other way but the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not only counterintuitive... It is counterdoitive. We do not do it naturally. I just made that word up. And understanding this as we move forward will be absolutely essential. It'll be the key to understanding anything else in this series. We should also have at least a cursory grasp of the background of 1 Corinthians, which is well-established and well-known and widely accepted 1 Corinthians is an apostolic letter, largely of correction, 
from Paul the Apostle by the Holy Spirit to his troubled and troublesome congregation, the church at Corinth. And there were three major issues, at the very least, three major issues, at least three major issues that scholars normally occupy themselves with. And these three major issues put them, that is the Corinthians, at odds with Paul early and often, and, it, and they also put them at odds with an orthodox practice of their Christian faith as young as they were and as early as the church was. First, the congregation was literally divided, split actually, into four distinct groups or parts, not for small group ministry, not for pastoral care, not for elder authority, not for multi-site gathering, but they were against one another as to whose leadership and teaching they should or would follow. Paul's, Apollos's, Peter's, named Cephas here in our past, in 1 Corinthians, or Christ's. And perhaps we can get a sense of the danger and the urgency of the situation that Paul senses when he writes in 1 in chapter 1, verses 10 and following, by the Holy Spirit, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. So basically, whoever among those who'd led the congregation that they liked more or got along with better, they considered authoritative and worthy of their attention and allegiance, and it was a complete rejection of the Holy Spirit's sovereignty over the congregation to serve with and under precisely who the Holy Spirit brought at any particular time in their history. And please don't let what we might call the Christ party fool you. Of course, you know, when we hear that, oh, it was the Christ group, we want to be part of this. Don't, don't let them fool you. They were almost certainly the worst offenders and the most divisive of all, believing that they had a direct line to Christ. They didn't believe they needed to listen to or submit themselves to any earthly authority, beginning with Paul, maybe even, even especially Paul, and saw themselves as the truly or at least more spiritual of the church. Second, it seems the people had pretty much a constant and ongoing tendency to bring with them various pre-Christian cultural and pagan religious practices into the church. Of course, this put them at odds with Paul and the gospel. And it threatened their viability as a Christian congregation and especially their witness to the risen Jesus Christ in the world. This aspect of Paul's pleading correction by the Holy Spirit comes to a head in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where we read his astonishingly passionate words. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thirdly, there was and and there is the matter of spiritual gifts into which our chapter 13 is intended to be ballast in the ship of biblical Christian practice. And here it is, if you do not love each other and the world around you, as God in Christ Jesus has loved you, nothing else will matter. I'll say it one more time. If you do not love each other and the world around you as God in Christ Jesus has loved you, nothing else will matter. And so Paul writes to the Corinthian church as well as to the church in Winnipeg, including Bethesda Church, a three-chapter treatise on the proper use of spiritual gifts by spiritual disciples of Jesus Christ in the longer and essential context of a truly living biblical Christian church of the Lord Jesus Christ in their and in our place and time. We are a body of Christ. We represent him and we ought to manifest his character in our doing and in our speaking in our going and in our staying, in our praying and in our serving. And the point is, as you might have heard recently, if we do not love each other and the world around us as God in Christ Jesus has loved us, nothing else will matter. That is it. That's the whole message of 1 Corinthians 13, specifically verses 1 through 3. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours, and may God bless us all, everyone. But for the sticklers in the crowd, we should probably at least read the verses. Also, I don't want to give a bad example of what biblical Christian preaching should not be, that we don't even have, have to read the sermon text in the delivery of the actual sermon, though that's far more common in the church so-called today than you would ever imagine. So 1 Corinthians... Chapter 3, chapter 13, rather, verses 1 through 3. I want you to notice that Paul in this chapter speaks almost entirely in the first person. He is not preaching at anybody. He is first observing this truth in himself, reminding himself, correcting himself, And so may we do the same. If I, Mark Wilcoxon, speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I, Mark Wilcoxon, am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. I'm not making music. And it benefits nobody. Verse 2. And if I, Mark Wilcoxon, have prophetic powers, which I don't, and understand all mysteries, and I don't, and all knowledge, and I don't, and if I, Mark Wilcoxon, have all faith, which I don't, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, watch this now, I am nothing. (laughs) 
Sounds very much like Jesus saying that he is the vine and we are the branches and apart from him we can do nothing. Verse 3. If I, give, if I, Mark Wilcoxon, give away all that I have, and if I, Mark Wilcoxon, deliver up my body to be burned, please don't cremate me, but even if you did, and I didn't have love, I gain nothing. This has been the priority of the Christian faith, life, and ministry. And it's love. Let's pray together. Lord, make us like you. By that, I don't mean to say make us like you, but make us like you, rather than ourselves. May we also, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, may we also be saved, sanctified, justified, changed continually into the character and the very image of Jesus Christ in our place and time. And may we as a congregation reflect your image rather than our own. And may our character be yours and not our natural senses and appetites and ambitions. In Jesus' name. I wanted to close the season with how the scripture closes the story of Christ's coming according to Matthew's gospel. If you want more information, you can turn to Luke and he's got a, a lot more detail that uh, you need to fit into Luke's sparer account or, or Matthew's sparer account. But I chose this because it's shorter. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream again, I added the again part, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. Lord, would you make our story correspond more and more with your story? And our example, as Yuri brought out, of Joseph, who cared for this child that wasn't his biologically, but was his by stewardship and appointment and responsibility. And Lord, help us to be stewards that simply obey you and look to you for the outcomes. Thank you for bringing us together on this New Year's Day. Bless us this day, this week, this year, Lord, by your word, in your spirit. 
as we follow Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Happy New Year to you.